0: From NPR, this is Justice Talking. I'm Margot Adler. Worldwide, the rising cost of food is affecting the poorest countries, spurring violent protests and calls for increased international food aid. But we're feeling the pinch here in the U.S. as well. Rising food prices
1: in some respects may just be this straw that breaks the camel's back.
0: On today's show, we'll talk about our economy and how food prices, free trade, and the Iraq War are affecting our pocketbooks both in the short term and down the road.
2: We have not really felt the full brunt of the cost of this war because we have essentially put it on the national credit card.
0: As we all know, where there's debt, there's also interest. Coming up after the news. This is Justice Talking from the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg Public Policy Center. I'm Marco Adler. A major focus for voters in the race for president is concern over the economy. But what are the hidden costs behind headline issues like soaring food prices, free trade agreements, and the war in Iraq? On today's show, we'll look at each of these issues beginning with food costs. It's certainly not news that prices for things like milk and eggs are rising. But what may be forgotten is that millions of Americans are struggling to put food on the table. Here's one indication of how serious the problem has become. Many food pantries have had to limit the amount of food given to each family. America's Second Harvest and National Food Bank surveyed 49 food pantries and concluded that nationwide, food banks are seeing a 15 to 20 percent increase in the number of clients they serve. Stacy Dean is the director of food assistance policy at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. I asked her how food costs are affecting low-income Americans.
1: Rising food prices in some respects may just be the straw that breaks the camel's back. I, I doubt we'll see riots in the streets as we have overseas. But it's just one more thing that's making it very difficult for poor families to cope.
0: I know that you believe and have said that there are a number of economic factors contributing to why so many families are having a hard time stretching their money and and food stamps at the grocery store. Uh, I've heard that you've called it a perfect storm of hardships. Explain
1: that's right. Many of us have experienced um, some difficulties with the recent economic slowdown. Some folks uh, may have lost a couple of shifts or lost income. We know that there's a housing crisis. Many folks can't make their make their mortgage payments. Fuel prices are on the rise. We're all feeling that at the pump or as we get our a monthly electric bill. And when you add rising um, health care costs, uh, child care is another rising cost. Um, To just put food on top of that, it really is the perfect storm of struggle. And for families that have every dollar, almost down to every penny allocated each week, Uh, To see milk and and eggs and the basic staples go up um, is is just extraordinarily difficult for them. There is no discretionary room in their budget, and uh, when milk is another dollar a gallon, it means that they're going to have to cut the milk with water. There's no place else to go in their budgets.
0: One way the U.S. government helps people in need is with the food stamps program. First of all, how does this program work and how many people are currently using this system?
1: Well, this is a program that's paid for entirely by the federal government, but states run it in cooperation with the feds. About 1 in 11 Americans are on the program. Another way of putting that is almost 28 million people were on the program uh, in February of this year. And what
0: income do you have to have to be eligible for food stamps?
1: A way to explain it might be by way of example. A family of three needs to have less than $22,000 a year. In uh, income, in order to qualify for the program.
0: Are there more families on food stamps now than a year ago, given the situation?
1: The caseload started rising in 2001, 2002. I um, mean, we're up 39% from five years ago. There's only just been a recent little spurt in the last six months that has captured a lot of folks' attention.
0: Uh, given that, that food costs have gone up about 4% in the last year, do food stamps still cover food costs for a family?
1: No, food stamp benefits are adjusted once a year for food inflation, and that happens in October. Um, since then, the benefits buy um, only about 96% of what they did in October. That still sounds pretty good, but for a typical family of four, that's $25 less a month that their, um, their food stamps are able to buy. And, you know, that basically can amount to a bag of groceries. And if you have no extra money in your budget to buy food, that means you've got to get by on a bag less of groceries each month, which can be very difficult, particularly for seniors or families with young children.
0: And what do you think the future holds for the food stamp program and for those in the U.S. that are struggling to feed their families?
1: I think it is important to remember that before the rising food prices about a year ago, we had 35 million Americans who struggled to put food on the table uh, each day, and often parents skipping meals themselves to ensure that their kids eat. the The food stamp program, it's not just hyperbole when I say it is the first line of defense against hunger. It is out there to help families. We need it today to help us during what I hope is a bubble, as I said, a perfect storm of, of struggle for families. We're going to need it tomorrow and next year, so long as we have families who are working at jobs or have incomes where they just can't afford food. And I think we've got to take a look at that problem longer term. Stacey Dean is
0: Director of Food Assistance Policy at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. Thank you so much for coming on Justice Talking.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: We've been talking about how the increases in food prices have been affecting those living on the margin. But why are these prices going up? While it may seem like a mystery to some of us, according to my next guest, it's simple economics. The cost for milk and wheat has gone up because worldwide demand has outstripped supply. Eggs have increased for a different reason. The cost of producing eggs has risen because the price of chicken feed has grown dramatically over the past year and a half. Bruce Babcock is a professor of economics and director of the Center for Agricultural and Rural Development at Iowa State University. Not only are we seeing higher prices in the supermarket, but also at the gas pump. I asked Bruce if there is a correlation.
3: There's two correlations. One's direct, one is indirect. The direct correlation between gasoline prices and food prices is that every piece of food, almost every piece of food that um, we eat has been transported somewhere. It's also been manufactured. Both the manufacturing of food and the transportation of food requires gasoline or diesel fuel, and the cost of those two transportation fuels has been skyrocketing. The indirect impact is that as the cost of feed has gone up, um, those food items that are manufactured out of those raw agricultural commodities has gone up because the prices of those agricultural commodities have gone up. One reason that the price of feed has increased so dramatically is that a larger and larger proportion of the U.S. corn crop, which is the primary source of feed for livestock in, in the United States, has been diverted into Um, producing fuel. And one reason why corn is going into fuel is because the, the gasoline prices are so high that the world is really demanding alternatives to gasoline. And so one alternative that we have right now is corn ethanol. And so more corn is going into ethanol to fill our tanks up with gas.
0: So how much U.S. corn is grown for ethanol? How much is for human and livestock consumption? And how much can we blame ethanol production for the rising food costs?
3: Right now, somewhere around 20%, 25% of the U.S. corn crop is being diverted into um, corn ethanol. And you think, well, what's 20 or 25%? But that is a greater percentage of um, corn than is exported to other countries. And the United States is by far the world's largest exporter of corn. So it's a it's a very large share of the U.S. corn crop is going into transportation fuel. So about 20% to Corn ethanol, maybe another 20, 22 percent into exports. That leaves about 60 percent for feed in the United States and for food use.
0: I want to get back to food uh, for a minute and food prices. Uh, recently, President Bush made some comments about prosperity in countries like India contributing to the rise in food prices. And he said that India has a new large middle class, which is demanding higher quality food, which is causing prices to go up. Indians were absolutely outraged at these comments, saying that they're an exporter of food, not an importer. Who's right?
3: President Bush is right. Um, the uh, And you could add China into that, too. Uh, it, it is a fact that India is an exporter of food. But if their middle class wasn't eating more, they'd be even a bigger exporter of food. So that's the wrong comparison to make. So, um, And the total consumption of feed grains that are going into producing um, more meat, more dairy products has been growing tremendously. So we have been asking the agri- world agriculture to supply more and more feed grains, be- not only because rich countries are eating more meat, but it's really the growth in feed grains is coming about from increasing incomes and changing diets in not only China and India, but other parts of Asia and, in fact, in Africa. The demand for feed grains is growing growing tremendously. As soon as people have more money in their pockets, they demand a different diet, and that different diet is putting a bigger and bigger demand on on the world agricultural land.
0: So as there becomes uh, more and more and more people that have... uh higher incomes, more prosperity. It sounds like we're, we're heading toward a crisis and certainly food price increases and food shortages are being felt worldwide. There have been violent protests. There have been riots in countries. Some countries have stopped exporting food. Uh, India, Egypt, uh, Kazakhstan. Is there a real possibility of, of running out of food? Are we, in fact, in a food crisis?
3: We're in a, what I call a mini food crisis. And I say mini food crisis because I think of this as more of a wake-up call to what could happen if we don't pay more attention to our agricultural production system. It's not surprising that countries chose to reduce their exports of, of food when prices went up because it's a it's an initial reaction of any country to save the food for their own people first. And what that did this last year is that it greatly increased the price of rice because there's only about six major rice exporters and maybe three of them decided to curtail the rice exports. That left importing countries with a dwindling supply from which they could import. And so it's like making a run on the bank People basically lost confidence in the ability of the world food supply to deliver the the goods to them. And so everyone started hoarding. And so when that happened, that price of rice more than tripled. So I think it's a big wake-up call to all of us to uh, invest in agricultural uh, productivity. And it's a wake-up call politically to make sure that we try to keep borders open and uh, make sure that we share what we have with everybody out there.
0: Bruce Babcock is director of the Center for Agricultural and Rural Development at Iowa State University. Thank you so much for talking with me and coming on Just This Talking. It was nice. We've heard about how a perfect storm of rising food and gas prices are making it difficult for people to make ends meet. Factor in the U.S. job market and things have gotten even harder for some Americans. An issue not lost on the presidential candidates who are arguing over the best way to protect jobs. Coming up on Justice Talking, we'll talk about whether, as Senators Clinton and Obama suggest, we should renegotiate trade agreements like NAFTA.
4: What these free trade agreements do is they provide U.S. workers, U.S. consumers, and U.S. uh, companies a level playing field. And, you know, if if we sit down and take a time out, the rest of the world is going to pass us by.
5: These so-called free trade agreements have been a boon for multinational conglomerates, but they've really been a bust for workers here abroad.
0: Stay with us. This is Justice Talking, the public radio show about law, justice, and American life. I'm Margo Adler. At the beginning of today's show, we talked about some of the hidden causes behind the rising costs of grocery store staples like milk and eggs and the effects on poor people. In this segment, we look at another factor that may be pinching the American pocket, free trade. Earlier during this election season, NAFTA became a political hot potato for the two leading presidential Democratic candidates, each claiming the other supports the controversial 1994 free trade agreement with Canada and Mexico. Political pundits dismiss the dust-up as pandering to those valuable white working-class voters. But in fact, American skepticism about free trade appears to be on the rise. A recent opinion poll by the Pew Research Center found that nearly half of the respondents deemed free trade a bad thing for the country, compared with 34% in 2004. And an overwhelming majority equated free trade with job losses here at home. I invited two guests here to debate free trade and its impact on American jobs. Christopher Wenk is the Senior Director of International Policy at the United States Chamber of Commerce, the world's largest business federation. Richard Trumka is Secretary-Treasurer of the AFL-CIO, a federation of over 50 national and international labor unions with over 10 million members. I asked Christopher if the increase in anti-free trade sentiment is a reflection of the economy, the election or the media?
4: Well, you know, I mean, there, there's no question that uh, that we're very concerned about uh, what appears to be an erosion of public support for trade, because there's always been strong support for trade in the United States of America. Um, you know, I think that, you know, th- there generally needs to be a better trade education effort done by supporters of trade expansion like my organization. Um, you know, the reality is that booming exports generated nearly half of U.S. GDP growth over the last year. And I, I think that we need a better job of telling the story about trade because there are millions of jobs in America that depend on trade. And you know, more frankly, to this uh, this poll that you mentioned, um, it, it's important to look at what what questions were asked of these people, um, whether it's trade generally or a specific free trade agreement. But, you know, th- there is there is you know, support for trade, but it is eroding, and it definitely is a concern of ours.
0: Richard, um, the reason there's this sentiment against free trade?
5: Well, first of all, these so-called free trade agreements have been a boon for multinational conglomerates, but they've really been a bust for workers here abroad. I think the erosion is not so much for trade, the erosion of support is for f- these free trade agreements. You see, these free trade agreements encourage and reward, the relocation of production capacities abroad, uh, and then they sell back to America. As a result, over the last 15 years, we've seen the annual trade deficit go from $39 million to $70 billion uh, in this period of time. We've lost 40,000 manufacturing plants have closed. Over 3.2 million manufacturing workers have lost their job. We have less productive capacity. We have to import more uh, from uh, foreign countries. We are less secure as a nation. And they see that the agreements that, one, that have been negotiated are bad, and two, this administration doesn't even enforce the weak agreements that they've negotiated. And as a result, we're paying the price uh, for their laxness.
0: Free trade and its impact on American jobs have come up continually throughout the presidential race. The Democratic contenders, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, have both argued that NAFTA, for example, hurts American workers. Senator John McCain has been a champion of every free trade agreement. I'd like, first of all, both of you to characterize NAFTA and its impact. Richard, you first.
5: Sure. Uh, we were told that NAFTA would do several things. Uh, at the time, we had a, a, a surplus with Mexico. And they said, one, the surplus will increase. Two, uh, it will increase jobs. And three, it will increase the standard of living for the Mexican worker as well as the American worker. Well, what we've seen is all three of those are wrong. Uh, one, uh, the standard of living for the Mexican worker has gone down. Two, wages have stagnated here. We've lost productive capacity. And three, our trade deficit is bludgeoned.
0: Christopher, NAFTA and its impact.
4: Absolutely. You know, since, since NAFTA entered into force in 1994, trade between the United States and Canada and Mexico has more than tripled. This, You know, Mexico and Canada are the top two export markets for U.S. companies and U.S. workers. Every single day... Canada, Mexico, and the United States of America conduct over $2.5 billion worth of trade. I mean, these are facts that cannot be overlooked. These are huge markets for, for U.S. workers. There is, you know, our, our economies are all tied together through NAFTA. NAFTA has been a huge success in our opinion. And to do anything to open it up uh, would be a huge, huge mistake.
5: Well, you know, let me, let me say this to you, Margot. NAFTA has been a real success for, for some people. It just hasn't been the workers in Mexico, Canada, or the United States. Because if you look at it, it's been a significant contributor to the erosion of real wages for the majority of American workers. Not just NAFTA, but all all the trade agreements. Since 2000, household income has dropped almost $1,000. Now, the assault on unions and workers right here in the United States is really closely connected with similar assaults worldwide. A, a deepening global economic integration – without any enforceable protections for for workers' human rights, has set the the rights, wages, and working conditions of the most vulnerable and disenfranchised workers in the world as the standard for all all the others to meet.
0: But couldn't you argue, and I'll ask this of Christopher too, couldn't you argue that there are other reasons for this, technology, China, India, all kinds of other reasons that do this, not necessarily NAFTA?
4: There are all sorts of factors that, that contribute to this. I mean, there is productivity. And I think that, you know, people don't like to talk about productivity and, and technology, frankly, in terms of you know its impact on our workforce. But it has had dramatic uh, implications on our workforce. And just to, just to, back to what Rich was saying about its impact on Mexico and Canada. I mean, you know, the reality is that since NAFTA went into effect, Mexican GDP has grown by almost 50 percent and Canadian GDP has grown by 56 percent.
5: And the workers' wages have dropped.
4: Uh, well, I, you, know, you know, Rich –
5: and the workers' wages have dropped.
0: Well, let me ask you both this. Both Clinton and Obama say that if elected, they'll renegotiate NAFTA with stricter labor and environmental standards. Richard, I'm assuming that you would support those measures. uh, And I'm wondering what you're actually looking for. What would you like if that happened?
5: Well, first of all, we think we ought to take a look at these things. You can't say that our, our trade program has been a success when our deficit has gone from $39 billion to over $700 billion. What Christopher doesn't tell you is we have to bring in $2.5 billion every day to pay for goods that we consume but we don't produce. So what we're saying is let's stop and let's take a look at these trade agreements. Let's figure out what is working and what isn't working let's take the best of the agreements and keep them let's take the things that aren't working and turn them to the advantage of the us economy
0: christopher when you hear that clinton and obama say they want to renegotiate nafta have stricter labor and environmental standards you have reservations or do you think that's a good idea
4: There are labor and environmental standards that that are incorporated um, on the side of NAFTA when President Clinton came to office. And what what, uh, Senator Obama and Senator Clinton and uh, Rich have advocated is actually opening up the agreement, which would mean that Mexico and Canada – could come to us with other things that they like to see renegotiated, which would be bad for U.S. workers, because right now these are markets, you know, our our workers and, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of companies across the United States are depending on uh, to employ workers. And so, you know, it would be a huge mistake to reopen NAFTA.
0: Now, we've spent a lot of time on NAFTA, but I'm wondering about China and India. How much of a threat are they to American jobs? I'll start with you, Christopher.
4: Well, you know, I mean there's no question that India and China are um, you know, emerging players in the in the global scene. Um I mean certainly China, I mean there's no question and there there certainly are I think valid concerns that, that people raise about uh, about Chinese trade practices, and we certainly encourage uh, the U.S. government to crack down on some of those practices. But you know, this is also a growing market for for U.S. exports. I mean, our exports uh, in 2007 grew by almost 20 percent to China. There are lots of opportunities for for U.S. exports uh, to China, and uh, and it's certainly the same to India. I mean, India, our trade with India isn't anywhere near where it could be. But um, these these are obviously two uh, you know emerging players in the global scene. And these are two countries where there are certainly a lot of opportunities for for U.S. companies and workers to export products to.
0: Richard, let's take a closer look at one particular – Can I I respond to China? Okay, very quickly, yes.
5: Yeah, uh, our our imbalanced trade relationship with China needs urgent – and I said urgent – attention – the Chinese government has violated its international obligations with respect to, to workers' rights, human rights, currency manipulations, export subsidies, and intellectual property rights, among other things. Our deficit with them has hit $256 billion in 2007. That's up from $22 billion just 15 years ago. And EPI, the Economic Policy Institute, estimates that that has cost the U.S., million jobs uh, since 2001.
0: Richard, um, let's take a closer look at one particular free trade agreement between the U.S. and Colombia that's been in the news recently. The Bush administration has already negotiated it. It's being held up in Congress by House Democrats. From what I understand, Colombia exports currently enter the U.S. market duty-free, while U.S. exports to Colombia face very steep tariffs, which would be eliminated if this agreement was adopted. The AFL-CIO has come out strongly against this. Why? Why?
5: There's, there, there's a basically a couple of reasons. First of all, let's talk about what it would mean if it were signed. The United Nations Economic Commission for Latin America said that the net benefits of the agreement would be point zero 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 four percent of GDP or a one-time increase uh, for each American of one penny, a little over one penny if it's done. Now, let's talk about what happens in Colombia. First of all, it's common sense that workers will have more respect on the job and they'll get better wages and benefits if they can form a union. However, in Colombia, joining a union or advocating for workers' rights can be a de facto death sentence. 24 trade unionists have been murdered in just the first four months of 2008. Now, that's a substantial increase over 2007 when 17 were murdered the first four months. In 2007, 39 trade unionists were murdered there and and 11 trade unionists were victims of attempted murder and 224 received threats. Now there's no question that the continued murder and threat of murder has a chilling effect on, on people's ability to organize.
0: Let Christopher get in here and talk about this uh, agreement.
4: Yeah, where, where do I even start? You know, the, the Colombia that Rich is talking about is the Colombia 15, 20 years ago. The transformation of Colombia over the last 10 years has been absolutely remarkable. The reductions in violence, the economic input activity, it, it is absolutely remarkable, the progress that has been made. And a lot of it has been attributable to President Uribe. There have been studies done in the last year about this transformation. The Center for Strategic International Studies Put out a report in November called Back from the Brink that outlines his progress. Editorial boards across the United States of America have weighed in about the importance of moving forward with Congress ratifying this free trade agreement. We are almost one year ago from the May 10th agreement that was reached between the administration and congressional trade leaders, including Speaker Pelosi, that incorporated enforceable labor and environmental standards in pending free trade agreements including with Colombia one year later this agreement is still out there the most important thing about Colombia is that the AFL-CIO advocates supporting preference programs for Colombia which allow all of their exports to come into Columbia, to the United States duty free whereas our our workers are put at a disadvantage where we can't get into Colombia because we face some steep tariffs
5: Christopher, the last time you spoke for American workers as the Chamber of Commerce, uh, I can't remember when it was, so I don't think you need to speak for American workers. But you've got you to remember something. You think I'm talking about the Columbia 15 years ago? Tell that to the workers, the, the workers, that have, the 24 that have been killed this year alone, the 17. There were only 17 last year. This year it was 24.
0: Let me ask both of you this. If globalization is the new reality— is there a soft landing for American workers and businesses? I'd love to turn this for a minute to solutions. You know, what do you think can happen that will protect American jobs, stop the, the, the loss of American jobs and make a new reality possible? And I'll start with you, Richard.
5: Well, first of all, we do have to, we do have to renegotiate uh, the contra- or the agreements that we have because they're simply not working. But the fact is every year the, deficit, the trade deficit continues to grow. So we have to start doing that. Now, in- enforceable, not things in a side agreement that are unenforceable that Christopher loves and he applauds, uh, but enforceable labor standards, enforceable uh, environmental standards, and enforceable things like that are very, very important. But we also needed administration that is willing to actually enforce those laws. This administration has absolutely turned its back on on any kind of enforcement. Everybody in the world knows that China manipulates its currency, and this administration has done nothing to end that. In fact, we filed a a petition uh, using government figures. It was about 200 pages long. The, The Bush administration had 45 days in which to examine it and make a decision on it. In less than three hours, they rejected that that petition that was made up of all of their own figures. Now, I wish Christopher would join us in actually trying to get some action because the CBO says, the Congressional Budget Office says, that if China lived by its own agreement, two-thirds of the plants that have been closed in the United States and relocated there couldn't have done so because it would have been economically unfeasible to do so. All the communities that have been devastated – all the workers that have lost their jobs, pensions, and health care could still be working if they just enforced the weak laws that we currently have.
0: Christopher, uh, if globalization is this new reality, is there a soft landing for American workers? Are there solutions? uh, What do you see as the future of American jobs and workers?
4: Globalization is here to stay. And there are thousands and thousands of companies and works, those companies that are taking advantage of opportunities that are presented by globalization. The, the answer is not a timeout on trade. The answer is. You know is more trade and smarter trade, and what I mean by smarter trade, I mean fair and free trade and the, in, you know in terms of these free trade agreements, we are one of the most open markets in the entire world, and what these free trade agreements do is they provide u s workers u s consumers and u s uh, companies a level playing field and you know if if we sit down and take a time out, the rest of the world is going to pass us by, and for example, with Colombia. Canada, our neighbor to the north, is wrapping up a free trade agreement with Colombia, and if, if our Congress doesn't ratify this agreement, then Canadian workers, Canadian companies, and Canadian uh, you know, farmers are going to have uh, an upper hand on us uh, in, in Colombia. And you know, we, need to, we need to keep moving forward. We need to make sure that, uh, that we, that we are, are pushing forward, opening uh, foreign markets to our exports, which means more jobs for U.S. workers.
0: Christopher Wenk is the senior director of international policy at the United States Chamber of Commerce. Richard Trumka is secretary-treasurer of the AFL-CIO. I'm sorry that we don't have more time. Thank you both for talking with me today.
4: Thanks, Margo. Thanks, Margo.
0: Along with fears about job losses and the downturn in our economy, the Iraq war is a top issue among voters. The war is costing taxpayers $12 billion a month, and that doesn't include the financial, emotional, and physical costs faced by our returning veterans.
2: This is a truly uh, unimaginably broken system. There is a backlog of more than 400,000 pending claims, and when veterans come home, they have to wait from six months to two years before they can begin to get their disability benefits.
0: We'll also talk about the pervasive use of private contractors in Iraq. Some say they now outnumber U.S. troops. Stay with us.
6: Justice Talking is produced by the Annenberg Public Policy Center, a think tank at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. The program is made possible with support from the Annenberg Foundation. The foundation works to advance public well-being through improved communication. Additional support comes from NPR member stations and West Legal Ed Center, where lawyers can listen to Justice Talking for MCLE credit online at WestLegalEdCenter.com. And from Oxford University Press, publisher of the United States Constitution, What It Says, What It Means, A Hip Pocket Guide. The Hip Pocket Constitution is available at Justicetalking.org. This is NPR National Public Radio.
0: After nine years and more than 300 shows... Justice Talking is going off the air this summer. We've covered some of the major constitutional battles of the past decade, as well as wrestled with issues like national security, free speech, and health care. We hope you'll share with us some of your favorite Justice Talking programs. Did you have any of those driveway moments when you were listening to our show? We hope you'll share your memories with us. You can email us at jtinfo at This is Justice Talking, where we make the connection between law, justice, and American life. I'm Margot Adler. When looking at the hidden costs of various parts of our economy, perhaps one of the most dramatic is the Iraq War. There is, of course, the financial price tag of fighting a war, but there are also other costs. My next guest, Linda Bilmuth, argues that Americans don't have a picture of the real price tag. She is a professor of public finance at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. Along with Nobel Prize-winning economist Joseph Stiglitz, she's written the book, The Three Trillion Dollar War, The True Cost of the Iraq Conflict. Welcome to Justice Talking, Linda.
2: Thank you very much.
0: As I understand it, the Bush administration said they expected that the total cost of the war would be about $50 billion. Clearly, it's costing way more than they originally thought, but... $3 trillion? Talk about how you came to this number.
2: Well, the $3 trillion figure is actually very conservative. Um, I mean, we simply looked at how much money the war is costing to date. uh, And through the end of this year, it will be costing us about $800 billion. And then we essentially added in uh, three large costs that are not counted in that number. And those are the costs of taking care of veterans, both uh, in terms of medical and uh, disability benefits. Um, secondly, replenishing the military forces, which have been very, very drained uh, by uh, the conflict. And third, paying interest on all the money that we have borrowed to, um, to finance the war. And then in addition, there are costs which really the government doesn't count, but that people actually pay. For example, the families who give up jobs when they have a, a wounded uh, family member returns, and about 20% of the families are doing this. There are the cost of long drives to seek medical care. There are costs that uh, we feel in the economy, macroeconomic costs, and if you add all of this together, you very quickly reach a large number.
0: You say in your book that this war is the first where we haven't been asked to sacrifice financially. In fact, even after we went to war, President Bush and Congress cut taxes. What are the long-term repercussions of funding a war completely through deficit spending?
2: You know, this is the first time that we have ever paid for a war like this entirely by borrowing the money. This is also the first time since the Revolutionary War that we have borrowed a lot of the money from overseas. In the Revolutionary War, the colonies borrowed from France to fight uh, the United Kingdom. And now we are borrowing, of course, from China and, and Japan and the Middle East. Now, the, the consequences of this are that we have not really felt the full brunt of the cost of this war, because we have essentially put it on the national credit card. And uh, as everyone is familiar with, when you something on the credit card you have to pay it off with interest so our children who are going to inherit the bill for this war are going to be paying not only for the war uh, but they are also going to be paying very very high uh, interest payments uh, for the war and this will mean that the, the effect of the war the cost of the war continue for for several generations
0: I gather that another hidden cost uh, of the Iraq war is that we don't really have a totally clear picture of how many people have been killed or injured. Why not?
2: Uh, Well, we do know how many people have been killed because if you look at the record um, of fatalities that the Pentagon keeps, uh, they count both those who are killed uh, in combat and non-combat situations. So in other words, if you are in a helicopter and it is shot down, or you are in a helicopter and you crash into a mountain. If you are killed, either way, you show up on the uh, widely available Pentagon list of fatalities. But if you are wounded, the Pentagon keeps two separate sets of books. So if you are in that helicopter and you are shot down and you're wounded, you are on the widely available wounded list. But if you are in a helicopter that crashes into a mountain, you don't appear on the wounded list. You appear on a separate list, which we needed to use the Freedom of Information Act to actually access. And this is a hard-to-find second tally, which counts all of those who are wounded in non-combat situations, are injured or seriously diseased enough to require medical evacuation from the theater. And if you look at that list, what you see is that there have been more than 70,000 Americans who have been wounded or injured, not the um, 30,000, which is widely reported in the press.
0: I'd like to focus on the financial picture as it relates to our returning veterans. I know you've done a lot of work on yes, this. Indeed. Walk us through what the costs are for veterans.
2: Well, the um, Department of Veterans Affairs does two things. First of all, it provides... Medical care through a network of thousands of hospitals and medical facilities and clinics around the country. And second of all, it provides disability compensation and a number of other disability programs uh, to veterans and their families who have been uh, disabled. Now, um, both of these processes are uh, very, very overwhelmed at the moment by the demand of returning veterans. There are um, more than 300,000 veterans who have used the VA medical services who have returned from Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, and there are about 250,000 veterans who have already applied for disability compensation. Now, to look at the disability compensation situation first, this is a truly uh, unimaginably broken system. There is a backlog of more than 400,000 pending claims and when veterans come home, they have to wait from six months to two years before they can begin to get their disability benefits and they have to go through a process in which the burden is largely on the returning veteran to prove that the thing that is wrong with them, for example, if they've lost hearings or they've lost a leg or whatever it is, that that actually happened while they were in the war.
0: In the final chapter of your book, uh, The $3 Trillion War, you make recommendations for reform that would change the situation for veterans. What would you actually like to see?
2: Well, I think the single most important change is a very simple common sense change. See, in this country, we essentially pre-audit every veteran who comes back uh, before we enable them to receive benefits even though eventually 90% of the benefits that are applied for are approved. So what we should do is essentially what we do with taxes at the IRS. The IRS doesn't audit every single tax return. It accepts all the tax returns up front, and then it audits a subset of them. And the second change is that the way that the VA health care system is funded needs to be uh, radically overhauled, Right now it is a discretionarily funded system competing for funding with all kinds of other things. And particularly when you have a large capital intensive hospital clinic based um, system nationwide, uh, this needs to be funded differently through a, uh, we've proposed a kind of a trust fund similar to the highway trust fund so that you essentially take the medical system off the the sort of discretionary uh, funding table and think about how to invest in it and how to um, provide care that makes sense um, a third you know issue, something which is very critical at the moment is uh, to pass the GI bill for um, returning veterans.
0: are there a couple of reforms that you are also proposing that would make the real cost of the war more transparent?
2: Well, absolutely, and thank you for asking about that. One of the problems in doing a study of this kind and in trying to understand how much the war is costing is the fact that the Pentagon uh, has never passed a financial audit. Now, here you have a situation where we have a $500 billion Pentagon budget, which has thousands of material weaknesses, that means significant deficiencies, on its balance sheet. Its auditor's report is absolutely, uh, you know, I urge anyone who's listening to this to go to the Department of Defense and read their inspector general and auditor reports to if you really want to feel upset, because they point out that they actually in the military have no idea where any of the money is going for anything, whether it's inventory or receivables or payables or personnel and so the consequence of this is that we are uh, we really cannot figure out or account for the money that is going to pay for the war and other things now we um strongly believe that it is necessary to have consolidated and auditable and transparent financial accounts for the military, which would show, first of all, where military spending is going, and also all of the other departments and agencies, which include the Social Security Department, the Veterans Department, the Labor Department, the Energy Department, uh, and others, um, the State Department and so forth. So we could really see the uh, accounting for a war. And then um, the public would have a much better ability to decide whether they felt that uh, we were getting our money's worth.
0: Linda Bilmes is one of the authors of The Three Trillion Dollar War, The True Cost of the Iraq Conflict. And she's at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. Thank you so much for coming on our show. Thank you very much, Margo. Congress called for greater transparency not long ago by requiring that the Pentagon do a census of private contractors in Iraq. But even with this requirement, it's tricky to get a real picture of the number of contractors in Iraq and how many have been killed or wounded. By the Department of Defense's count, there are 138,000 contractors there, but others say the number is 180,000. Only about 21,000 are U.S. citizens. Deborah Avant joins me now to talk about the use of contractors in the war in Iraq. She's a professor of political science and the director of international studies at the University of California at Irvine. Welcome to Justice Talking.
7: Thanks for having me.
0: How much does the Department of Defense spend on hiring contractors?
7: Well, um, in 2007, uh, a GAO report just uh, released in January suggests they spent $314 billion on contracts. And those are contracts with the Department of Defense. So actually, that uh, some of the contractors in Iraq are working for the State Department, and those um, those contractors wouldn't be included in that number. So if you think about the the, the number may be even larger than $314 billion.
0: There are lucrative financial incentives for working for a private contractor. Give us some examples of the differences between, oh, soldier pay and someone working for private security in Iraq.
7: Well, um you know, one of the figures that's been floated uh, um, most consistently is that, you know, a, a soldier working in Iraq may make about a third the amount that, say, a contractor, a U.S. contractor working for um, a company like Blackwater providing security, for instance, for State Department employees. But the numbers actually vary quite a lot when the insurgency heated up and there was a huge demand for contractors and the number of contractors swelled a lot in Iraq there were stories of people working for these private security details in Iraq being offered you know something like three times the salaries they were making doing those jobs in other places like Colombia and the world just to to go to Iraq but that kind of pressure actually Induced the companies to begin to hire more third country nationals and more Iraqis. And those people actually cost quite a lot less. And so, you know, a South African um, working in Iraq may make, you know, something like half of what a U.S. citizen um, working in Iraq would make. And somebody coming from Fiji or Chile or El Salvador may make even less than that. And so there's, kind of a pecking order um, based on the, um, the kind of salary that that person might make in their home country.
0: When government agencies hire a private company, they usually have to go through a competitive bidding process. But in the beginning of the Iraq war, uh, that process didn't always happen. How are most private companies hired and what kind of oversight is in place to supervise them?
7: The hiring uh, is is highly contingent. Um, in some circumstances the government may be may decide that um a job is so important, or so the skills that it requires are so rare that it that it doesn't make sense to compete it. That there really is the only one contractor that could provide the service. And and uh, one of the most famous examples of that was um, in the sort of contract to deal with uh, potential oil fires and such. KBR had that contract Kellogg, and, they, and Root. They, Brad Kellogg Brown and Kellogg Root, and they got that contract without a competitive bidding process. And one of the reasons why was because it was believed that they were really the only company that could provide the requisite skills in time to get people into Iraq. Now, one of the ironies is that the the people who actually wrote that report were, in fact, employees of Kellogg, Brown, and Root. And so, you know, Kellogg, Brown, and Root working in, in one guise for the DOD had written this report, and in another had benefited from it. And so that's one of the the, the difficulties of that kind of thing.
0: Uh, you know, some people are concerned that they don't really have the same kind of control over private corporations that they do over the government. At least in theory, you can vote your congressman out of office if he or she decides to fund a war you don't approve of. So I guess my question to you is, isn't the increasing use of private contractors dangerous to our democracy and to the power of citizens?
7: It's a complicated question because in some cases, um, uh, you know, Privatization has worked efficiently. In other cases, it's much more problematic. Um, I actually think, in the instance of the U.S. use of military contractors abroad, um, the the biggest problems it poses um, to democracy, and I think that there are big problems to democracy, have to do with the lack of transparency. It's difficult to actually cover this kind of issue. People don't have access to the same amount of information. It also has um, restricted the role of Congress. Congress has a lot of influence on the whole structure of military organizations, which influence all kinds of things about the military. Um, and yet, when it funds a war, um, it does not have the same kinds of control over contracts and over the contractors that are that are deployed and In fact, a lot of times Congress is simply you know writing a check for a certain amount and it does authorize a number of troops, but it doesn't authorize a number of contractors and so it it, it really cuts down on the the control of Congress and therefore on the checks and balances that we assume are operating um, in u
0: s democracy. Debra Avant is Director of International Studies at the University of California at Irvine. Thank you so much for coming on our show. Thanks for having me. When we hear in the news that more than 4,000 American military service members have died in Iraq, that number doesn't include the more than 1,000 contractors who have died. 10,500 have been wounded. We've covered a lot on today's show, from the costs of the war in Iraq to jobs in America to food prices. How are these stories affecting you? Let us know at justicetalking.org. Before closing, I want to say a thanks and good luck to former Justice Talking intern and staff member Judy Jarvis. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll tune in next week. I'm Marco Adler. Justice Talking is produced by Ingrid Lakey, Kara McGurk, and Viet Lay. Gary Gaiman is our webmaster. Annie Jergens Baer coordinates outreach. BJ Lederman composed our theme music. Engineering by Audio Post Philadelphia. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania or NPR. This is NPR's Justice Talking.
6: Support for NPR comes from the Annenberg Foundation, Advancing Public Well-Being Through Improved Communication, on the web at annenbergfoundation.org. From Kauffman, the Foundation of Entrepreneurship, celebrating entrepreneurs who start businesses and change the world, on the web at kauffman.org. And from the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, Making grants to solve social and environmental problems at home and around the world on the web at Hewlett.org. This is NPR, National Public Radio.